0: I don't know if you were blindsided like I was this week with uh, that article in the Dallas Morning News that said, according to a recent study, our beloved city ranks number one in the nation in infidelity. Now, how they did their research, I still can't quite, you know, figure that out, but there you have it, number one for cheating. Well, 2,000 years ago, the city of Corinth would have given us a run for our money In the ancient world, uh, Corinth had gained such a reputation for being a morally loose city that the philosopher Aristophanes coined the term Corinthiazo, meaning to act like a Corinthian, okay? That's not a compliment. And what we're about to see in our text today, 1 Corinthians 5, is a church that is actually giving the pagan culture around them a run for their money. Even the citizens of Corinth were shocked by what was happening in the church, Now, whenever we talk about sexual immorality and the demise of our culture, uh, people often think of and their minds tend to to go toward and we pick on one particular left coast liberal leaning state in our union. Anybody take a guess? California. In fact, the Red Hot Chili Peppers would pick up where Aristophanes left off when they released the album Californication, which is the only pop culture reference you're going to get for the rest of the sermon. So I hope you enjoyed that. Um, Growing up in Texas, I always thought this reputation was a little bit overplayed until I went to college in California. And about two weeks into my freshman semester, there was this annual tradition that I had heard about but didn't know what it was. It was an annual tradition at Stanford called Full Moon on the Quad, where every freshman was gathered on the quad of the first full moon of the school year, And uh, then all the seniors were there as well. We didn't know what was gonna happen, but there they were. And when the clock struck midnight, the senior girls would kiss all of the freshman boys. Okay, we didn't do stuff like that growing up in Texas. And just to be clear, that kind of behavior was silly and inappropriate, and I was better than that, and so I made a vow I would never ever do that if I'm a freshman in college again. Well, imagine how hard it would be to do something of a sexual nature in California that would shock the Californians. One would have to be quite creative. Then imagine there was a church in California that was out California-ing the Californians. That's what's going on in the Corinthian church. Even the people of Corinth were like, whoa, that's crossing the line. Now, before we read our text, uh, this is one of those Bible passages that would be so easy and, trust me, tempting to skip over. Like, we could just kind of settle right into 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, keep it light. But every now and then, I think we need to be confronted by difficult texts like this. One of the collision points for Jesus' followers in Corinth The place where their devotion to Jesus was being challenged by the ethic of their day is what they do with their bodies. And it is no less true for us today. So let's look at this together. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And I would encourage you to open up that Bible in front of you so that you know I'm not making this story up. We'll start in verse 1. Paul says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And the Greek word there is the word porneo. It's twisted or warped sexuality. And it is of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought not you rather to mourn? Now we're going to pause here and we'll come back to this. So first, Paul talks about the problem, and then he's going to lay out the punishment. The punishment. So the problem, here you've got a man in the church sleeping with his father's wife, his stepmom. Notice the tense of the verb, he has his father's wife. This wasn't a one-time thing or in the past, it is still happening. The woman, by the way, was not addressed, we assume, because she wasn't a Christian, she wasn't part of the church. Which kind of brings up an important clarification. Later in verse 9, here's what Paul will say, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Paul's concern is not with what's going on outside the walls of the church in Corinth. He is not calling us to shout as loudly as possible, you're all going to hell because of your immorality. Now, it doesn't mean that we should condone it, but we certainly shouldn't be surprised by it. And this reminds me of what Henry Blackaby once said, why are we so worried that darkness is dark? Of course it is. Paul is not calling us to unfriend everyone outside the church who doesn't meet our standards of purity and obedience. That's not what he's saying. This is about people who are in the church, who claim to follow Jesus, we who are called to a way of life that is holy. And so Paul writes to them and he says, you're allowing behavior in the church that even pagans outside the church wouldn't allow. And they were just going on with church life as if there was really nothing unusual or inappropriate about it. In fact, Paul says, you're not just tolerating it, you are proud. Instead of grieving, you're gloating in your immorality. Recently, there was an NFL quarterback who was trending on social media for almost bragging about the rumors of an illicit relationship with his mom's best friend. And it's like even the suggestion that he might have done such a thing became this flex that won him more followers and more fans, not less. Paul's like, do you even hear yourselves? The immaturity to boast in something that even pagans know is inappropriate. I mean, Paul comes down hard. This has to stop. Now, having said that, let me point out something interesting here, and I'm grateful to Vic Pence for this insight. This is the fifth chapter in 1 Corinthians, and Paul has known about this scandal since before writing this letter. How many, you know, conservative, firebranding Christian preachers today, if they were writing 1 Corinthians, verse 1 would have started right out of the gate Dear heathens, dear fornicators, and they just would have, that's all you'd hear the whole letter. But what does Paul do? In order, he addresses first in chapter one, their pride. Then he goes after their divisiveness. Then they're quarreling with one another. And then only then in chapter five, does Paul get around to the area of sexual failure. Then two chapters later, we're gonna run into another group of Christians in Corinth who've gone in the extreme opposite direction. They're saying sex is dirty. And so in the same way that Paul goes after the partiers, he's about to go after the prudes as well. These super spiritual couples who believe that that when they devoted their lives to Jesus, they should go cold turkey and never have romantic intimacy again. And Paul hears about this and he says, no, 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 no. Stop pretending that you're super spiritual by foregoing romance as married couples. Less late night prayer gatherings and more date nights, Paul says. Well, why was Paul so concerned about this? For two reasons. First, they were taking something God said was holy and saying, it's unholy. God said this was a gift, and they said, no, it's gross and it makes us impure. And Paul says, that's just bad theology. It's dishonoring to God. But then another reason Paul challenged them on this, and this can be a more subtle thing. But when you take this extreme view of anything sexual is bad and evil and wrong, the end result can actually be the opposite of what you'd hoped. I'll give you an example. Some of you may remember the name Hugh Hefner, famous owner of Playboy magazine. Oddly enough, Hugh Hefner grew up in a very religious home where there was little to no affection allowed. Well, he was interviewed before his death in his Playboy Mansion, and he was asked about his childhood. And here's what he said. I was raised in a setting where sex was for procreation only, and the rest was sin. Our family never hugged. Oh, no. There was absolutely no hugging or kissing in my family. There was a point in time when my mother, later in life, apologized to me for not being able to show affection. That was, of course, the way I'd been raised. I said to her, mom, You couldn't have done it any better, and because of the things you weren't able to do, it set me on a course that changed my life and changed the world. Growing up, starved for affection by his own admission, Hugh Hefner rebounded in the opposite direction to make up for what he lacked as a kid. By painting sex as dark and dirty and evil, we sometimes go off the deep end in the other direction. And for centuries, churches and Christians have found themselves leaning to one extreme or the other, whether it's legalism or censorship or condemnation, anything sexual is bad. Philip Yancey has done some fascinating research on Christianity in the Middle Ages, how the church actually banned sexual intimacy between husbands and wives on Thursdays because that was the day that Christ was arrested, and then eventually they banned it on Fridays because that was the day of his death. And then the church said, no romance during the 40 days of Lent, and then during the 40 days of Advent, and then eventually, just in case, they threw in the 40 days of Pentecost. In fact, the church added so many days of fasting and holy days to this list that in order to follow obediently the church's rules, only 44 days a year were approved for marital intimacy. And some of you hear that and you think, man, that sounds awful. And some of you are like, where do I get a calendar like that? And then we find ourselves going in the other extreme in a time like we find ourselves today where it's safe to say that the sexual behaviors within the church, research points to this over and over again, really isn't that different from the rest of the world. And Paul writes to the Christian Corinthians, some of whom are leaning all the way in this direction and some of whom have just gone off their rockers in the opposite. And he says both extremes are missing the mark. So Paul lays out the problem with this young man in their midst. Not only are they tolerating his behavior, they're almost proud of it. Well, then Paul issues the punishment, and we find this in verse 2. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And then if you skip down to verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Whoa. That's pretty intense, Paul. Deliver him to Satan, the destruction of his flesh. What are we to do with this? Why does Paul issue such a severe punishment? Part of it, it just seems so far removed from the cultural norms of our day when it comes to sexuality. Our ears aren't used to that kind of severity. I once heard it explained like this. In essence, what we're teaching the next generation in our day is that sexual connection is a lot like a sneeze. It's just another instinctive biological function of the human body. Well, the problem is when you isolate the person from the function, the result is dehumanizing. Right? Today, we teach the function, we teach plumbing, and we call that sex ed. When, as a Christian, we would submit that 90% of everything you need to know to be joyfully fulfilled as a sexual being, you will find in these scriptures. Yes, you need to know the other 10%, but 90% of what we need to know is right here in the Word of God. It is the deeply spiritual meaning of sexual union that sexuality isn't just biology, it's relationship, it's theology, it's doxology. It's worship, honoring God with our bodies. Male and femaleness, it's not just a way to keep humanity going at a birth rate of 2.2. God fashioned us this way to overcome aloneness and to complete our creation in his image. In our sexual union, God has given us this dim echo of his own communion within the Trinity That just as God exists in eternal oneness within himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so God has given us this way of uniting as male and female in a lifelong union. The two become one in an act that symbolizes an unbreakable total union called marriage. I've mentioned before this old wedding vow from the old book of common prayer where the groom would stand on the chancel during the vows and would say to the bride, and then the bride would say back to the groom, with my body, I thee worship. That's like the farthest thing from what in our day is called casual sex. There's nothing casual about it. It is the most sacred of acts where you give another person access to your soul. Which isn't it interesting, we live in a day when we are so concerned about not letting anyone get access to our personal data, our bank accounts, two-factor authentication, whatever that is, and yet we seem so casually willing to give someone access to the most intimate parts of who we are. Casual sex, it's a contradiction in terms. Look at what Paul writes in the next chapter in 1 Corinthians. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever Sins sexually, sins against their own body. Do you not know that you are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And this leads to another reason this is such a holy act. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Every person you lay eyes on is a person God created to be his precious temple. They are of infinite worth, worth even dying for, which is why God holds us so profoundly accountable for how we treat one another's bodies. Now, let me take a moment to draw one application of this, and one that may not have been front and center in Corinth, but it certainly is today, and that's pornography. Now, porn has been around for a long time, but what's happened over the last, say, 30 years is it went from something that you had to either go somewhere to see, like on Northwest Highway, now to something that you can view in total secrecy on your phone at any moment you want. And this is where technology, while it can be such a gift, it is not a neutral thing. What technology has done to create this epidemic of warped sexuality, and it is wrecking marriages, and it is shaping a distorted view in the next generation of something that was created by God to be enjoyed in the sacredness and wonder of marriage, and it's distorting that. And I know, trust me, I know how uncomfortable this subject is. It's like nobody wants to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. And so we keep it hidden and we keep it secret. That's one of the reasons why this addiction is so rampant, even among Christians, because because we pretend it doesn't exist, which plays right into the devil's number one strategy, which is to get you alone and isolated and in the dark, in secret, struggling with the shame of your failure. And if that's the case for you, you're a sitting duck. You cannot, do not try to overcome this alone. So let me just share a few things that have been helpful to me, and none of this is rocket science. First thing is accountability. I I meet regularly with two local pastors, two men whom I have so much respect for: Mark Davis, Philip Jones. They become dear friends. And both of them have permission to ask me, whenever we get together, how am I doing in the area of honoring God with my body? How's my thought life? And I'll tell you, just knowing that I have friends who are in my corner and who love me enough to ask that question and that they are going to ask me that question can help me to overcome temptation. Don't go at it alone. Another daily practice for me, and this may or may not be helpful for you, but I have a little um, deck of prayer cards that I have right next to my Bible, and I go through these every morning, and they're prayers for certain people in my life, or certain scripture verses that I want to be a true north for me for the rest of the day. And one of these cards simply has the words, you are not your own, you were bought at a price, honor God with your body. And just beginning my day with these words, you were bought at a price, Honor God with your body. It reminds me of what is true about me and of every person I will interact with throughout the course of the day. And that helps me to govern my thoughts. In fact, our creative team took this a step further. They want to fight technology with technology. And so we created an iPhone wallpaper with this verse. And just as a reminder for the 350, let's be honest, some of you look at your phones way more than 350 times a day, but every time you were bought at a price, Honor God with your body. Uh, You can download this. There's a QR code and a link in the worship guide. um, Or you can ask your grandkids to help you download this. (laughs) And you can make this. I've made this my phone wallpaper. Especially if you got the new iPhone, what are we on, a 27, iPhone 27 this past weekend. Honor God with your body. So back in our text, Paul says you need to put this man out of your fellowship hand him over to satan for the destruction of his flesh. And we read that and we're like, man, I know this is serious business, but isn't that a little harsh? Well, according to the writer Ken Bailey, it's actually there's actually surprising restraint in Paul's response. First of all, Paul could have gone the way of Jewish law, which would have meant stoning this man to death. He could have taken this to the Roman courts, which would have required this man be arrested and punished severely by the state. Instead, Paul says, throw him out of the church. Think about the consequence of being removed from this community, right? It's not like our day where he could just walk down the street to the next church, right? There is no second church in Corinth. His sudden removal into total isolation from this community might have a devastating, sobering effect. Maybe like that moment with the prodigal son in the far country, he might come to his senses and see the gravity of his sin. But what about this whole handing him over to Satan and destruction of the flesh thing? And we could just go down a rabbit hole here. Uh, There are some scholars who think hand him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh basically meant, look, Ultimately, the best way to save this guy is to let him die so that he can just go be with Jesus. I mean, it'd be better for him to get to heaven sooner than to keep messing up himself and, his, his, and other lives. In other words, one writer said, he would arrive in heaven as a shipwreck, shipwrecked sailor, but at least he would arrive. Okay, that's one possible reading, but I don't think it's the right one. The better reading I would suggest is that hand him over to Satan means hand him over to the world to the realm of Satan's domain, outside the protection of the church for the purpose of destroying the sinful desires that are controlling him at present. One scholar said it's almost like dropping a rebellious soldier into enemy territory to wake him up. Either way, the purpose, verse 5, so that he may be saved. It is for his good and his ultimate redemption. Discipline always has that goal. But here's the thing, it is not just the saving or the redeeming of this one man, it is the redeeming of the church. It's about the redeeming of the church as much as it's about the redeeming of the man. Paul says to the Corinthian church, your very existence as a people, as a mission set apart to be a light in the darkness and a city on a hill and the hope of the world, it is at stake here. Do nothing, tolerate this kind of behavior and you are risking the very destruction of the whole body. So Paul commends them and commands them to to come down hard on this young man with tough love and to put him out of the church, which I know sounds harsh, but it's as if Paul is saying, do whatever you can in love to wake him up to the fact that he's rebelling against God. But even as you do that, do it in love, not condemnation, not shame, not shame. And let me make this as clear as possible as we close. Anytime we talk about what we do with our bodies and decisions we have made, or maybe that we've made in the past, there is no place for condemnation and there should be no place for shame in God's church. There is always hope, always grace. Nobody's beyond forgiveness or redemption. And we believe that through grace, Jesus can heal the deepest scars. Even for this man in the Corinthian church, the one Paul said should be cast out, he is not beyond hope. And who knows? Maybe one day that young man would wake up and turn around and walk away from his own self-destruction and back into the arms of his lovesick heavenly father and be welcomed back into the family of faith. So heavenly father, anytime we come to a topic like this, there's so much weightiness, there's hurt. And right now, God, we bring whatever burden, whatever sadness or regrets we may be carrying and we lay them down before you. And we pray for healing and for forgiveness and for hope. And God, if we need to bring something into the light so that we can find healing and redemption, would you give us the courage to do that? And we thank you that with Jesus, There is always hope. And we pray this in the assurance of your love and in the power of your name. Amen.